Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've been looking at the book of Genesis and uh, the portion of Scripture that we've reached. Essentially, we're getting more and more into the flood narrative. And we saw last week, or perhaps even the last couple of weeks, of how, as God looks at the world, he saw that the the thoughts of the intentions of the hearts of all the peoples in the world were continually evil. And this is a reality, and we saw this, this is a reality not just for the people that existed during Noah's time, this is a reality uh, all throughout human history, and it's even true this day. Even for those of us who are Christians, who are, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think of those of us who have been saved. Some of us, you know, we were, grew up in church settings. Some of us grew up in perhaps some kind of religious settings and maybe not in a church setting. Some of us grew up in uh, extreme worldly settings. And yet... For those of us who have been saved, all we can say is, it was all the grace of God. But really, when we we look at our own lives and our hearts before we were saved, we all had the same hearts. You know, there was no difference from the person who grew up in the world and the person who grew up in in the church. Sure, it may have manifested itself differently, but really, we all had the same hearts. That's why we all still needed Jesus. That's why we all still needed the grace of God and we continue to require the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit even as we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so in, the, in this flood narrative as it's beginning, God looks at the world and sees how the world is utterly corrupt. And it's going to its ruin, and God promises that he himself is going to ruin the world. Really give the world what it wants. A judgment that is really exactly what is in accordance with how they're living. And now we're coming to a section which which will talk about Noah and the building of the ark. This is a section that talks about God's provision of salvation for Noah and his world. And and through this we will also begin to understand God's working of salvation, something of that we can learn as well, which is universal in its scope. And we can learn about God's character again and and how uh, what is our responsibility with regards to the salvation that God provides. And then on top of that, we will also see Noah's response to all that God says to him in terms of how to build this ark. And even from there, we can learn some things from Noah's life and the way he responds. And really, it's, it's, working, of God, uh, it's a working of God in Noah's life, but we can see how we can emulate that even as we know that it is God who is working in us. 
I've divided this portion, verses 14 through to 22, under two headings. We're going to look at first the instruction for building the ark. And let's see what we can learn about God's provision of salvation and something about God's work in salvation through this. It says there in verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Remember just in the verse before, in verse 13, we saw this last week, of how God came to Noah and explicitly tells Noah how he's going to end all flesh. That God has determined to ruin all flesh. God has put this in place already. No one can stop it. Satan cannot stop it. Man cannot stop it. No one can undo what God has determined to do. Everyone is going to return to dust because of their sin. God says, this is what is going to happen to Noah. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that God is going to destroy everything on the earth, God now gives instructions to Noah to build an ark. Really an ark of salvation. In, you know, in verse 14 it says there, make yourself an ark. And this term ark is really the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 3 that's used of baby Moses as he's put in a basket of reeds. That term there that's translated as basket, that is the very same term that is used here to translate as the ark. And so this word ark, it really just means a, a box or a chest. It's a type of vessel that floats on water without any reference to its size. And when you think of the two accounts, the, the rescue of baby Moses and the rescue of Noah, there's, there's actually quite a bit of similarity. See, because God saved Moses from being drowned in the river Nile by the Egyptians... And he saves this, this baby Moses, why? So that Moses then would be able to deliver his chosen people, Israel. But in the case of Noah, it's on a much grander scale. God will save this one man, Noah, and his family from being drowned in the flood by means of another ark so as to save humanity. So that the human race would once again then propagate on this earth as God had planned. So unlike the, the word ark that was used for Moses, which was just a tiny basket. The ark that is used here for Noah is a massive vessel that is meant to float on water, and, and, and we'll see how massive it is as we get into the descriptions of this ark. Really, in the case of Noah, this ark was going to be something of a cargo ship kind of thing. 
And it says there that this ark or this vessel was going to be made with wood, gopher wood. Now, we don't know exactly what uh, this gopher wood is, but what is clear is that this wood, whatever kind of wood it was, it was a hardy wood, uh, a wood, a substance that was strong enough that would not rot when it was exposed to the elements of the floodwaters for about a year. And Noah was also meant to make rooms in the ark, literally make nests in the ark. And it's the idea of making cells or, or stalls or compartments or, or little dwelling places. See, these were going to be specific designated compartments or dwelling places for the animals in the ark. So what these compartments or cabins would serve, uh, it would serve as a good separation between the animals in the ark. So that the animals wouldn't just be here and there and everywhere. No, they would have their own compartments and, uh, in their dwellings. Everything would be orderly and, and in their rightful place, all these animals. And I suppose to some extent it would have also helped with the weight distribution within the ark. So that when the, the ark is being tossed to and fro in the seas that all the animals wouldn't be riding to one side or the other side because they were all separated in these little cabins. Now Noah was to cover the inside and the outside of the ark with pitch, it says. In fact, in the original, uh, it's really covered the outside and the inside of the ark with a covering. So it, it may be some kind of pitch-like material that was used to, to cover this entire ark. Some kind of covering, some kind of pitch-like material. Uh, essentially, it's caulking the entire ark, putting a sealant on the inside and the outside of the ark to make it waterproof to protect the ark so that there wouldn't be any leaks when the ark is finally out at sea. So it's a large vessel made of wood with lots of rooms and it's made waterproof with some kind of pitch-like material. Now, now you might be thinking, but, but Noah, how, how is he so skilled to build this large vessel? Some of you might be thinking, I mean, I, I struggle just to build some things from, that I buy from Ikea, even with some of its instructions, I struggle to build that. Then how is Noah going to build such, such a massive structure? Well, remember, during this time, people lived for long periods of time, 800, 900 years even. And so during this time, it would be easy for them to acquire skills because they're living for such long periods and to gain knowledge and to gain wisdom and skill. 
And so perhaps Noah and his family acquired these skills as they lived for long periods of time and they applied it. Or, or perhaps Noah even employed some other people as well to, to build this ark. Either way, what we do know is that God equipped Noah well enough to build this ark. Why? Because the ark was ultimately built, wasn't it? But at the same time, you know, God doesn't leave this ark that is meant to save Noah and his family and, and the animals to, to chance. He doesn't just say, okay, Noah, just build this ark and everything will be fine. No, he doesn't leave it to human ingenuity to somehow make this ark. God actually gives specific instructions, specific dimensions for the ark so that his plan of salvation would be carried out. God designs the very specific details of how he's going to carry out his salvation. Verse 15 says, This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Now you say, what's a cubit? Well, a cubit was an ancient uh, way of measuring things. It's essentially the, the length of the forearm, all the way from the elbow, all the way to the tip of the fingers. So this length, that was what a cubit was. But you can see how there can be variations in when you measure a cubit. Because some people could have longer forearms and others shorter forearms. But roughly, a cubit was 18 inches or 45 centimeters. So to keep these dimensions in perspective, when it says the length of the arc was 300 cubits, that's roughly 450 feet. That's about three-fourths the size of the oval of the MCG. The breadth of the arc, 50 cubits. That's 75 feet wide. That's more than six car lanes. And the height of this arc, 30 cubits. That's 45 feet high. That's, that's roughly about three stories high. So you can imagine the, 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 the length of this big vessel, it, it's about three-fourths the ov oval of the MCG. About more than six lanes, car lanes. That's, that's how wide this thing is going to be. And it's about three stories high. Now, I was trying to figure out, you know, why is this detail given? I mean, I, I, I get that God had to give these details to Noah. But why is it recorded for us to understand these details? I mean, God could have just said, okay, God gave details to Noah to build an ark and that was the end of it. Why is it that we, we need to know these details? You know, and as I was trying to figure this out, I found the creation ministry is quite helpful. You know, some of the experts there were very helpful in helping me understand why these details were so important. See, because according to one of the experts there, 
In fact, a few other experts too have mentioned that these dimensions, they, they provide the best stability, the best comfort, and the strength for a large wooden vessel like Noah's Ark. In other words, if these dimensions were modified somehow, then this vessel would either capsize or topple over. Or it would be prone to fracture and break with all the weight and and even with the elements of the flood hitting it. Or if somehow you modify the dimensions, it could also be dangerously uncomfortable where it's tossing things around so much, it would be very difficult for things inside to stay alive. Because it would be moving so vigorously. So because of its specific length and the specific breadth and the specific height that God gave, it provides the best stability, the best comfort, and the best strength for a wooden vessel of this humongous size. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God provides the exact measurements for this cargo ship of sorts, so that it would never topple over, so that it would never break in the seas, and so that it would be a comfortable ride. You know, some, some liberals would look at this account of Noah and the ark and the flood, and they would say, oh, you know what, this is not really a, it's not a real account. It's just a story. It's just a myth. It's just a legend. And what they do is they they point to some of the ancient Near Eastern legends. You know, ancient cultures perhaps around the time of Noah or perhaps even after the time of Noah. And they would look to that and say, look, all these ancient cultures, they, they all have this legend and myth about a flood story and how there was a man who was preserved in some sort of ark like thing. In fact, one such legend is the the Mesopotamian flood narrative, the Babylonian flood narrative called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the funny thing is, according to this Babylonian legend, the ark was this massive structure, but it, it was a perfect cube, having the exact same measurements, even though it was a gigantic figure. And really, when you, when you work that out, that kind of cube structure would never survive a global flood because it would easily break. It could easily be toppled over. And it would be extremely uncom- uncomfortable to. There's no way that kind of structure would have survived a flood. And so the, the, the thing that we can tell such liberals, those who say that, oh, you know, Noah's ark and his story and the flood and that's all just a legend or just a story what we can conclude from these specific details is that really those stories in the ancient near eastern cultures they're mainly perversions of the actual event of noah and the ark and the flood that's the original story and as it went on through different cultures, 
I guess you could think of it as Chinese whispers. It got perverted more and more, and different forms of that story originated. And the fact that these dimensions of the ark provide this large vessel to survive the flood shows that this wasn't something that was made up. Every other story about a flood narrative and the ark and so on and so forth came ultimately from the original historical account of Noah and the ark and the flood. And, and, and even think about this, as for Noah's ark, you know, man couldn't have thought about this. He couldn't have thought about these dimensions. Yes, people during those times, we've talked about how they were so much more intelligent than us. But think about it, they, they, they couldn't have thought about this because there has never been a global flood. And on top of that, Noah would not have known how big the ark should have been so that it can contain all the animals and all the other things that it needed to contain that God was going to tell him. Noah would have never known that. Only God knew. God knew all along that he would bring about a global flood and he knew all along how big and how wide and how tall this vessel, this ark needed to be to accommodate everything that God was going to put in there finally so that it wouldn't capsize, so that it would still be stable, so that it wouldn't break as the floodwaters would come and hit this vessel. And really, I think it even shows the accuracy and the inerrancy of the Bible. That this indeed is the inspired word of God which contains no errors whatsoever. That there is not a single thing in the Bible which is just fake stories that are somehow showing itself to be actual accounts. No, this is God's word and it is recording what actually happened in history because only God could have given these specific dimensions of the ark so that the ark could survive this global flood and it would not be destroyed. Now verse 16, it says, Make a roof for the ark. And finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with the lower, second, and third decks. The word here translated as, as roof, it's a rare word again. And it's a word that can also be translated as window. So it could be that, you know, you have this roof that's overhanging the ark. And under the overhang of, of the roof of the ark, God is saying, have a one cubit long space. Uh, have a one cubit long opening all around the ark. This area that's just under the, under the roof of the ark. And this, this opening that was going to be all around the ark, 
it was meant to bring in light during the day. And it would also help with ventilation. You know, whether it was just for air circulation's sake, or whether it's just the dissipation of uh, body heat with all the animals and all the other living things that are there, or perhaps e even for just the smells with all these animals there. So it would... so. This opening on the top would allow for that light and, and ventilation to take place. And then on the side, if that's the opening on the top, then on the side, obviously much lower, would be a big door on the side of the ark, which would allow for entry for Noah and his family and all the animals. This door would be the only entry into the ark and the only exit way out of the ark. And so in some sense, it made it simple for Noah to kind of keep an eye on what's coming in and uh, once it's shut, everything is shut. And I guess in some sense, it reduces even leakage and things like that because the only thing he would have to think about is this one main door. So there's an opening on top for ventilation, for light. There's an opening or a door on the side, a big door to, for entry and exit, just one door. And it also says, God also says, this ark is to have three decks, an upper level, a middle level, and a lower level. And scholars estimate that about 50 to 60% of the floor space was filled with the animals. And the rest of it, the rest of the 50 or 40% that was left, it was for food and for Noah and his family to move around. So there was ample room in the ark. So in other words, there was plenty of space. It was a massive ark. It wasn't just a small boat sort of thing that you often see in children's Bibles. You know, where it looks like a, almost like a little dinghy with, uh, you know, the giraffes popping its head out and the elephants and whatnot. No, it was a huge cargo-like vessel that had ample space that would be able to hold everything and would be able to withstand the global flood. And God gave specific instructions on how to build this ark. But you know, there's one thing that is actually not mentioned. There's no mention with all, with all these details, at least with the main structure of the ark. There's no mention of a, of a mast or a, or a sail or a propeller or a, a rudder or anything of that sort. So then you say, how is Noah going to propel this ark then? He's not. And that's the point. You see, Noah would not be steering or propelling the ark. It would be God who would be steering the ark. See, if Noah was going to survive this flood, it would be entirely because of God's protective grace. Right from beginning all the way to the end, it was all of God. 
and his grace. There was nothing that Noah could do to save himself. No human will, no human effort from Noah's side could save him. The only thing Noah could do is just go along the ride in this, in this massive ark. But really, it was God and God alone who would save him, and Noah would have to trust God alone in his plan of salvation. So that's the instruction that God gives regarding building the ark. Now, up until now, Noah had only been told that God would destroy the earth because of sin. But God hadn't told Noah how he was going to bring about this judgment. And also God hadn't specifically told Noah why Noah needed to build this massive ark. And so now we come to our second heading, the reason for building the ark. And that's in verses 17 to 22. Look at verse 17. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under he- in which is the breath of life under heaven everything that is on earth shall die see because of all the sin and corruption because everyone at this time is sinful and corrupt and ruining themselves God is going to destroy or ruin, that same word, is going to ruin all flesh. Everything on earth will die. And God is going to bring judgment in the form of a flood. Now, God makes it explicitly clear to Noah how he's going to bring this judgment. And the word used here for flood, it's a a very unique word that is used here. See, because there are other words in the Bible that are used of floods, but this particular word that is used here, it's a word that is reserved only for the worldwide flood that God brought about during the time of Noah. This, use is, this word is used in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. So all the way from Genesis 6 to 11, you see this word repeatedly used. But outside of that, The only time it's used is in Psalm 29 verse 10, where again it's talking about the global flood. And really there in Psalm 29 10, God is saying that God is sovereign and in control over everything, including the global flood that he sent during Noah's time. That it wasn't an accident. God is supreme and in control and, and, and sovereign over even that global flood. So the judgment of flood that God is going to send is not just any flood. It's not just a, just a little flood in a, a you know, small local flood. It's not even a big tsunami uh, to a certain large area. No, it's a global, worldwide flood that God is going to send on earth 
to wipe out all life. Every creature, mankind as well as all the animals that is on the earth that has the breath of life. See, God is the one who granted the breath of life to all of his creatures. But because of the corruption that he sees, God is going to take away that breath of life from all his creatures. And the means by which he's going to take away that breath of life is through the flood that he's bringing, this global flood that he's bringing. And as a result, everything on earth will die. And the implication is this that only those that are not on the earth, but in the ark, those are the only ones that are going to survive. So in light of that, God says in verse 18, but, contrast, so he's going to destroy everything that is on the earth, but, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. See, God is going to establish or uphold a covenant with Noah. Now this word here, establish or uphold, it can either mean God is initiating a covenant. There's one other instance in Exodus where it talks about there. Or it could mean that God is upholding a covenant that is already in place. You know, when you uphold something, it's something that's already there and you're upholding it. You're holding it up like that. So it could even be that God perhaps made a covenant with Noah previously when he showed his grace. And now he's going to establish it. He's going to uphold it. And he's going to flesh this covenant that he has made with him. This word for covenant, it's the first time you see this word in the Bible. And in a basic sense, a covenant essentially means a binding promise. A binding promise. That's what a covenant means. So when God makes a covenant with someone, it is God making a binding promise with that person. And, and God's covenants, they're extremely important in the Bible. Extremely important. Because it is through these covenants that God makes at various times in history that this redemptive history then is shaped accordingly and moves forward according to these covenants that God makes in different points of time. So even as we trace the covenants in the Bible, we're able to understand, oh, okay, so this is how God is working uh, with his people in this, in this time frame. As this covenant is operating, I see how God is working here. And then as it develops and God makes another covenant, oh, I see now how God is working with his people and how he's operating right now. And that redemption plan in this way keeps moving on and it's shaped this way. 
So here we see, first of all, how God establishes a covenant with covenant promise with Noah. And it's a promise that Noah will be saved and there's going to be a future hope for him, despite the judgment that God is bringing upon this earth. But notice here, it is, it is God who is initiating and establishing this covenant, who is upholding this covenant. God is the one who brings the judgment, but God is also the one who initiates and is going to uphold this covenant with Noah. See, it's all on God. The emphasis is on God. It's not because of something of Noah. God is not establishing this covenant promise with Noah, not because Noah is somehow sinless. It's not because Noah in some way had more potential than everyone else in the world. God is not establishing this covenant with Noah because Noah in some way had a stronger will compared to everyone else in the world. No, God is establishing this covenant purely because God showed his favor and his grace toward Noah. And we saw that a few weeks ago in Genesis 6-8. That grace that was unearned, unmerited by Noah, God showed that favor toward Noah. And last week we saw because of God's transforming grace... In Noah's life, Noah was righteous and blameless and and walked with God because this grace was continuing to operate in his life. And so it is with such a person that God now sets up a a, a covenant promise and he's going to uphold that promise, ensuring the safety and, and a future hope for Noah. And really through Noah, This covenant promise is then going to flow out to others so that others too will be blessed as a result of this covenant promise. So God establishes a covenant promise that Noah will be saved and there's going to be a future hope. But there's not much said about this promise that God has made. We'll have to wait till Genesis 9 to get to the details of the covenant. So it's just a small sliver that we see here, a small detail that God says to Noah, I'm going to uphold my promise with you. And in light of this covenant promise with Noah, God says there are now specific people who are going to be saved from the judgment of the flood. God says it's going to be Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. They are the ones who will enter the ark, and they are the ones who are going to be safe. And it's not just this family, but it's going to be a bunch of animals as well. God is going to make provision as well to preserve the animals. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male 
and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. So God is saying to Noah, bring into the ark two of every kind of animal. Two of the same kind, male and female. You say, why two? Why the male and female? So that they can reproduce. So that these animals can flourish again after the flood. And, And verse 20 says, these animals will come to you. So God is going to bring these animals to Noah. And Noah's job was to ensure that they get in the ark and get into the allocated compartments that are assigned to each of these animals. Now some people have asked, you know, how is it that Noah could have accommodated all the animals in the world at the time? I mean, Two of every kind of animal. That's still quite a lot of animals, isn't it? Well, think about it. It's two of every kind. Now remember, we, we learned this in the first, few, first couple of chapters of Genesis. That the term kind, it doesn't refer to species but it refers to a much broader classification. There's no exact parallel to the scientific classification today, but it may be something broader, perhaps like what the scientific classification of the, 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 at the family level of animals or the genus level of animals. So for example, zebras and, and donkeys and horses, they can all mate with each other. And even though they are different species, they all belong to the same family, equidae. Tigers and lions, they can mate together, and, and you hear of them called ligers. And why is it that they can do that? Because they all come from the same family line of felidae. And we looked into this in a lot more detail in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. So if you're interested, you can go back and listen to what the implications of kinds are. So when we're talking about, you know, every kind, we're not talking about every variety of dog and every species of wild cat came into the ark. No, it's just two of every kind, that, that broader classification. And remember, God had put a restriction there that it's only animals of its own kind that could reproduce after its own kind. So two of every kind would mean you're talking about one dog pair, not all the different varieties of dogs. When we talk about two of every kind, we're talking about two of an equidae pair. So it could have been perhaps horses or horse-like or donkey-like or zebra-like, whatever it may have been. One pair of that. They were in the ark and after the ark, 
then within those kinds, all these variations happen, and then we got the donkeys and the zebras and the horses and so on and so forth. When we talk about two of every kind, we're talking about one feline pair. And then from there, the, the rest of the wildcat species came about. And all the other species and the variations in the animals that we see now came about each according to its kind. Not as a result of mixing of kinds and somehow different kinds came about. No, God had put a limitation, but each came according to its kind. And we see the variations of it right now. And so scholars estimate, therefore, in the ark, we're not talking about millions of animals, as we say, two, as the Bible says, two according to its kind. Scholars estimate the maximum would have been up to 75,000 animals. But even that, they say it's the very maximum. More likely, it would have been a much, much smaller number. So two of every kind of animal would enter the ark. Now, some have asked questions about, you know, what about the really large animals like the, like the dinosaurs and so forth? Well, again, some scholars have suggested that, you know, perhaps it was the young ones. I mean, why not, right? You have all these young ones, all these small little animals coming in, the, the hatchlings and so on and so forth. And so there would be ample, as it is, it's a massive, huge ark, and that it would be able to accommodate all these animals, each according to its kind. And the point of all these animals, two of every kind coming into the ark, is to preserve them. You know, twice in verse 19 and 20, it says, so as to keep them alive. So it's not as though, you know, these animals would come into the ark and, you know, by the time the flood has end ended, these animals would be so claustrophobic and they, they would just die even in the ark because they don't know what to do. No, God wants to ensure that these animals that are brought into the ark are kept alive so that once they're released after the flood, they could go out and repopulate the world. So that's why he's bringing them into the ark. In fact, so much so that God makes provision for food so that all life in the ark would be sustained. Look at verse 21. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you, that is you and your family, and for them. Who's them? All of the animals. So there'd be enough food to provide Noah and his family, as well as all the animals. Enough food for a whole year as they're going to be inside this ark during the flood. And then verse 22 says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I love that. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Twice it's repeated. Noah did this. 
you know, to really make a point. He really did this. Noah actually did everything that God had commanded him to do. God, Noah, his obedience and in doing all of these things. I, I want you to just think about it. This is not talking about just, you know, a day here, a day there. It's not even talking about months. We're talking about years. See, because this ark building project would have taken years to build. Remember, a few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that God had given 120 years for his spirit to thrive before he would send the flood. 120 years more of God's grace and patience, where God's spirit would, would warn mankind of coming judgment to turn away from their sin and to turn to God whether it's through Methuselah or through, through Noah himself. And sometime during this period, during this 120-year period that God had given, Noah was given instruction to build this ark. And this wouldn't have been an easy task. I mean, think of the number of years that it would have taken to build a massive ark. The, the number of trees that would have been chopped. Imagine every day Noah is waking up and he's like, okay, going out, chop another tree. Going up, chopping another tree. And the next day, 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 and the next day. And then it's not just chopping of the trees, then it's having to then shape these trees in a way that will make up this ark according to the specifications that God gave. So that it would all interlock and it would all be, you know, tight. And then the amount of pitch that he would have to collect to cover this entire ark, both on the inside and the outside. The amount of labor that would have gone into to, to create all the compartments and the decks and, and the opening on top and the doors and everything else that was needed, the amount of energy and time that was required. And even all the food that would need to be gathered so that they could survive for a whole year and all the animals too. Day after day, this would have been heavy, hard work. And even think of the world at this time. I mean, the world around him, we know that, was exceedingly evil and corrupt and they were forming unions with demons and, you know, they had no regard for God, no regard for righteous living, each living according to their own way. And violence and rape and debauchery and lawlessness of every kind was rampant. So Noah, as he's building this massive structure, he would have faced so much of mockery and Opposition of sorts as he's, as he's building this thing. You know, the whole time, Noah being faithful, telling everyone around, no, judgment is coming. God is going to send a flood. 
And this is how you can be saved. Turn from God. Trust in God's word. Don't trust your own heart. Don't live in your sin. And as years went past, one year, two year, three year, four, five, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, as the years and decades went on, you can imagine the people around him. You know, even, not just opposing him and mocking himself, but even to each other as they would probably be saying, oh, look at Noah there. He's been at this for years, for decades. He says he's trusting God. And he's building this thing. I don't, I don't even know what he's worried about. I mean, right in the middle of this dry land, he's building this massive structure. What a fool, they would say. And yet, despite all the hardships, all the labor, all the opposition he may have faced, there is not one mention of Noah speaking. There's not a word. In fact, the only time Noah actually speaks is much later after the flood. And it's in relation to when he curses um, one of his sons, or his grandsons rather. This whole time during the flood, with what God tells him to do, Noah never questions God. Noah never complains against God. He does not speak. He simply does all that God commanded him, even though it was difficult and even though it took so many years. In fact, even in Genesis 7 and Genesis 7, 5 and Genesis 7, 9 and then again in Genesis 7, 16, it keeps repeating that Noah obeyed all that God had commanded him. He was fully obedient to God. See, Noah hadn't seen a global flood, but he believed and trusted in God. He had never seen an ark so big before, but he trusted God and he made it anyway, despite all the opposition he may have faced and all the hard work. He still made it anyway because he trusted God. And he trusted that God would keep him safe in this very ark that God had asked him to build. Really, what, what, what this is, it's, it's a life of faith that Noah is displaying. Hebrews 11.7, part of uh, morning reading this um, today. Hebrews 11.7 says this. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, Noah trusted God in what he had told him. 
He trusted God in something that he had never before seen. He just implicitly trusted God's word. And it wasn't like Noah had lots of details about this either, even with regards to God's covenant promise. Remember, all, all God says is, I will establish my covenant with you. Okay, God is, has promised something to me. That, that's all he knows. There's, there's not much detail given beside that. And yet, Noah takes God at his word and implicitly trusts and obeys God. Why? Because he knows the character of God. Because he is a person who knows God intimately. He knows his character well. This is a person who understands the goodness of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. This is a person who understands that God is always good and right and therefore he does always what is good and right. This is a person who understands he is a sinner that is dependent on God and he cannot do anything to save himself. And so he depends on God. And he trusts God and obeys Him in all that he does. And really, if you, if you trace the logic in what Scripture has been saying so far, it is God's grace working. See, because in Genesis 6-8, we saw how God's grace was shown to this one man, Noah. And then we saw how God's grace working in Noah's life transformed him, regenerated him, and that resulted him living a righteous and blameless life, and he walked closely with God. And really, so this this life of obedient faith is just an expression of that life. This is just an expression of that righteousness that he has from God, of that righteous life. This is just an expression of what it means to walk closely with God, to walk in step with God, to walk in accord with what God has said and walking in His ways. This is a person who has experienced the grace of God. And this is a person who now understands and trusts in the very character of God and this is now lived out in obedient faith. What a marvelous testimony of God's grace is Noah and his life. You know, we live in a postmodern world where truth is relative, where people will say, oh, there's no absolute truth. And so therefore, we do not live by absolute truth. And so then the logic goes, 
So what do we live by if we don't live by absolute truth? It's whatever I think uh, is true or whatever I feel is true. And you know, it's, it's sad because this kind of thinking pervades even the church culture as well. Even Christians sometimes tend to wrongly think this way. You know, where they say, oh, I want to feel something about God. I want to experience something about God. Then perhaps I will obey God and obey His Word. And yet nowhere, nowhere in the Bible will you find that. We're never called to obey God only if we experience something or only if we feel like it. You will not find that anywhere in Scripture. No, we are called to live by faith in God, trusting in His character and His word and what He says. And that's the only way that we can experience the the blessed life, that life that God intended for us, that joyous life. Only as we trust Him and in His Word and live according to that can we have that wonderful life that God has planned for us. If we don't live according to God's Word, simply just relying on our feelings and whatever we think is true, that is the path of destruction. That is the path of ruin. For Noah, God's word of promise, no matter how slim it may have been, no matter how vague it may have been, where God simply said, I will establish my covenant with you, that was enough for Noah. That was enough for Noah to keep trusting in God, and to just do exactly what God had told him. You know, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says that Noah and his family, uh, them being saved from God's judgment of the flood in the ark, that is a, a, a picture or a prefiguring or a type of those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's a prefiguring of those of us who are in Christ and are being saved from the judgment of God. That's what 1 Peter 3, 20-21 talks about. And just like Noah trusted in God and in his provision to save him from God's judgment. Those of us who trust God's provision of salvation through Jesus Christ will also be saved from his judgment. That's the only way that anyone will be saved from God's coming judgment because we are all sinful people. We all have this sin within us. It is only by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. And friend, if you're listening today and if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know uh, who this Jesus is or what it means to follow Jesus, 
you can email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au and we'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me end by saying this. This this entire section that we've looked at, it tells us about God's provision of salvation for Noah. And it tells us about the grace of God that works in and through the life of Noah that, that is expressed in obedient faith. And this obedient faith that you see in Noah's life, it's really just a testimony of God's faithfulness where God said, I will preserve a people for myself, a people who will love me. And that's what's being shown here as God has poured his grace into the life of this man. And yet, even as we saw last week, as God's grace works in our life, there is also a responsibility on our side to live this righteousness, this blessed life that he's given on the outside, to work out this salvation. But as we do that, we look back and see that, oh, it's God working in me so I can live this way in obedient faith. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with these words, that like Noah, may God's word and his promises And the hope of the gospel alone. Not our feelings, not our experiences, not our circumstances. Because those are things that come and go. But God's word alone and his promises and the hope of salvation alone would be sufficient enough to sustain us in this life for us to live our lives for the glory of God. May God give us grace to live by faith, to make much of Jesus in this lost and sinful world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your provision of salvation. And even as we look at how you provided for the salvation of Noah and his family and all the animals. We see how it was all of your grace from beginning to end. It was your plan. You designed it, the ark, and everything that was needed to ensure that they would survive. And that is exactly what happened. And yet, Father, we see in the life of Noah also a life of obedient faith. While on the one side it is Noah's effort, on the other side we know that it was your grace that was poured out into his life. Oh, Father, that you would work in and through us so that we would then live our lives in obedient faith and and, and You get the glory and we are blessed by this. Why do you bless us this way, Lord? We know that, again, this is 
not because of ourselves, but because of you and because of your grace. And so, Father, we pray that by your grace, we would continue to live out this obedient faith, trusting in Jesus and making much of him all the days of our life. We pray all this in his name. Amen.